0: There's a podcast I think our listeners would want to know about. It's called Seen on Radio. The show has received much acclaim for its deep and engaging dives into the history and the very structure of American society. How can we see society more clearly so we can be more effective in changing it? Seen on Radio's two recent documentary series, Seeing White and Men, have explored racism and sexism in eye-opening ways. Check out Scene on Radio, that's S-C-E-N-E, on radio, from the Center for Documentary Studies and PRX. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. What is the power of nonviolence in the movement for social justice? That's our question for our guest on Future Hindsight today, Julianne Hoffenberg. She's the director of operations of the Gathering for Justice, which is a social justice organization founded by Harry Belafonte in 2005. The Gathering utilizes Kenyan nonviolence as a social application for change and civic engagement.
1: Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about
1: the moment when the Gathering for Justice was founded? So um, it was 2005 and Harry Belafonte at the time was on tour as a performer and he was um, in his hotel room and saw a news story come over the television about a five-year-old black girl in Florida named Jaisha Scott. She was arrested in her classroom for being unruly. And the photo that they showed on the news was of this tiny little black girl being bent over a desk and handcuffed by three white police officers. And so he was obviously clearly and immediately alarmed and thought, this has to be an anomaly. This can't be happening. So he started calling his peers from the civil rights movement. I think his first call was to Marian Wright Edelman of the Children's Defense Fund. And she sobered him up that it happened all the time that there were elementary school children in prisons in, in our country. And he was devastated and felt responsible. So he called together the gathering of the elders where he pulled all his peers together. And so one of his peers, who actually was a protege of his, a, a man named Nane Alejandras, and his young staffer was a young woman named Carmen Perez and he brought her to the second gathering and it was at the second gathering that they actually Made it official and said, this is going to be an organization and this is the gathering for justice. And Carmen became the youth director and then the national organizing director and then our executive director. And
0: Talk a little bit about the children who are being incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Ending child incarcerations one of your goals, right? Yes. And according to your website, and maybe the numbers are slightly different now, 4,020 children are arrested every day. That's yes. That's one child every 21 seconds. Yeah. Who are these children and why are they imprisoned?
1: So, you know, this is a part of a bigger problem, you know, that we sort of refer to as the school-to-prison pipeline. There are... Schools and communities, mostly in black and brown and poor neighborhoods, where in some places they call them resource officers, in some places they call them safety officers. But basically, what they are is police officers that are in schools in place of guidance counselors, in place of services or programs that children might need. So they take those services out and they replace them with police. For instance, I am a white person. I grew up in Connecticut. If I got into a fight, which I did in second grade, I would get brought down to the principal's office and I would have to listen to a lecture and maybe go to detention after school. But in a lot of schools around the country, they get into a fight, they get arrested. And that goes on their record. We worked with a young man named Khalif Browder, 15 years old. He was a young man from the Bronx and he was arrested for allegedly stealing a backpack. He went to Rikers. His family couldn't afford the bail. His case was postponed and postponed and postponed. He spent more than three years on Rikers, a tremendous amount of that time in solitary confinement, 753 days where he attempted suicide many times, where he was brutalized by guards and other incarcerated people, raped and beaten. when he finally got out, because they just dropped the case, the post-traumatic stress was so overwhelming that even a year after he got out, he'd been entered into college and was doing well. Police intimidated him on the street one day, and that experience, almost casual, but everyday normal occurrence, um, interaction with police just was too much for him. The idea of maybe going back, so he went home and he killed himself. And about a year later, his mother died of a broken heart, basically, a very young woman. I think it's 83% of the people in Rikers are not convicted of a crime. They're just doing time, waiting for hearings, waiting for trials to start. And they're basically just convicted because they can't afford bail. So they're poor. And a lot of those people are young. Things are changing a little bit. But you know, a lot of the kids that were sitting in Rikers were there because they jumped a turnstile.
0: What is the legal history there that we allow children in prison?
1: When is, has that been become Forever. a norm? There's an incredible book by Nell Bernstein called burning down the house the end of juvenile prison she calls for the abolishment of all juvenile prisons and she makes a very strong case for why that's important but basically we started criminalizing young people in the late 1800s early 1900s you hear a lot about especially young girls who were criminalized and you know put into certain kinds of institutions if they had any kind of independence and in like New York City, for instance, you would start to see these, not really shelters, but detention centers for young people, mostly you know, kids that they thought were trouble. According to Nell Bernstein, 99% of Americans commit at least one crime before they're 18, but only black and brown Kids of color and poor kids actually get criminalized for those crimes. So historically, there's this idea of stopping crime before it even happens. So they're criminalizing these children before they commit a crime. They're looking for certain behaviors that are innocent. Loitering is playing in other communities. It's just really entrenched in the way our criminal justice system works and how we value and view race and poverty. Yes. Yeah. How do you do your work? How does the gathering do its work? We do, I think, four things really well. We're very good at bringing coalitions together and trying to assess big problems and kind of dig deep into communities. We're excellent at rapid response. And just a few years ago, we brought together, we call it a criminal justice task force or an urgent response task force called Justice League NYC. We're interested in racial equity and juvenile justice and sort of where those things intersect. We really came together to focus on police brutality, police accountability and transparency and put together an agenda for justice reform in New York City, New York State and across the country. We ended up marching 250 miles With our organization and probably about 100 people that marched with us every day from New York City to Washington, D.C., so it was nine days. We marched about 30 to 36 miles a day and brought a really robust justice package with us, which was bills that were pending in Congress. We looked at the sort of national slate and thought, you know, if you pass this bill and this bill and this bill together, you would create this really robust criminal justice reform package. We're very good at working on the inside and the outside at the same time. I think a lot of that comes from the stuff that Mr. Belafonte taught us. He was such an integral part of the civil rights movement. He funded it. For us, Justice League is this team of superheroes. Everybody has their own strengths. It's completely volunteer. Nobody gets paid. Because of what we built You know, with Justice League, working on gun violence in New York City and doing nonviolence trainings and doing that police accountability work, Carmen and Lyndon Tamika, who are our leaders were asked to co-chair the women's March. And so our work it inspires a lot of other work. We were the fiscal sponsor of the women's March. our values and mission statement provided the foundation for the women's March, connecting people and finding a common agenda for liberation because that’s ultimately what it's about.
0: A common agenda for liberation. Yeah. You also have a deep background in theater and film, and you've done some theater that addresses social justice issues. Mm-hmm. How have you found that to be effective as opposed to the way that you're organizing now with rallies or going to visit
1: your elected officials? I have a theater company here in town called Naked Angels. The way we looked at theater was that it had a public good. And so we started with something called Issues Projects. And our Issues Projects addressed an issue of social concern and would bring community together. So our first one was homelessness. We had a theater on 17th Street. Covenant House was down the street. So we did our show with some of the the kids from Covenant House, every penny that we raised, which wasn't a lot, went to Covenant House. And and so I've always been interested in that, in that sort of intersection of art and theater and activism. I also started working with a political theater company here in town called Culture Project. And Culture Project had revolutionized that idea of political theater with a show called The Exonerated. And The Exonerated was monologues written by people who were on death row in real life, and then they were performed by actors. And very simply, just standing at a microphone, they had everybody from Bishop Tutu to Susan Sarandon to Bill Clinton reading those things. And then they were able to raise a lot of awareness about the death penalty. And even get some people off death row. They created a fund that took care of those people that the show was about and their families. And so it was all very immersive. Right. So there are so many ways to
0: raise awareness and basically create civic action. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about Kenyan nonviolence. What does the training look like and what does it look like
1: once you are trained? The main idea of Kingian nonviolence, it's not passive. It's about de-escalation. One of the principles is attack the forces of evil, not people doing evil. One of the principles is to suspend your first judgment. Mr. Belafonte always tells us you meet people where they are and you champion them to your cause. So you don't create adversaries and enemies and opponents. You create just a level playing field where maybe your view on youth prison is different than mine, but let me literally meet you where you are. But um, just a brief story. There's a, a man who was on social media, a troll, who had come at several people involved with Women's March and my organization. Vile language, horrible, terrible, you know, nasty, dangerous, violent things. And rather than go back at him in any kind of way, they basically said, like, kind of like, why are you like this? Why would you think this about me? You don't know me. Why? Where, where does this violence come from? Where does mm-hmm. this hate come from? I don't think that about you. I don't want you dead or... And it's been a year, and they just all met up recently. They're now working together. He has had a complete change of heart, basically gone from white supremacy to anti-racism work. And that that's sort of the beauty of nonviolence. Now, that doesn't work with everybody, and you have to be safe. It's not about going into violent situations unprepared. We have serious security concerns with some of the people involved with our organization. Uh, the gathering in 2010 or 11 trained the students of North Lawndale High School in Chicago, which at the time had the highest instances of daily violence in public high school in the Chicago area. And after this, they went in over the summer and they trained all the incoming seniors in Kingian nonviolence. And then the first week of school, the seniors trained the freshmen, and they went five hundred days without a single violent incident. Five hundred days—that's That's like, over a year. It's um, two school years, basically. Wow! If you can get to children at a young age and and help them figure issues out and de-escalate with their words instead right. of their fists, then you know you're definitely setting them up for more success as they get older.
0: Right. You do a bunch of things when it comes to the communities that you work with. One of the things is that you model behavior and exchange and dialogue between generations and community members and formerly incarcerated people. So what is your model to bring this model to them?
1: A lot of the work we do is based on the work that Carmen Perez has done. And, you know, her background is in prisons all up and down California and here in New York and in juvenile prisons. When she came here to start building with The Gathering where she built juvenile detention programming up at the Bronx, and the programming was cultural programming. There was writing workshops. We had young hip-hop artists that did music programs, and we did Know Your Rights and nonviolence training. We talk about storytelling a lot. People closest to the problem should be closest to the solution. And, you know, getting your story out is how you raise awareness. And so teaching the skills to young people and adults to be able to tell their stories is really powerful. Because of their incarceration, because of their physical limitations, their imagination needs to be stimulated. And when it is, it's, you know, beautiful, incredible things come out of it. There's an HBO film right now called OG it was filmed inside Pendleton Correctional Facility in Indiana with incarcerated men telling their own stories.
0: You really speak about the power of a cultural education for us as human beings, whether we're young or old, incarcerated or not, and it's something that really binds us. What makes you believe in the power of cultural education for Um, young people specifically?
1: Gosh, you know, I grew up a poor kid in a rich town in Connecticut. There was a, a community theater in my town and that was connected to issues. You know, so that just idea of I can create my own story and I can I can be anything I want and I can talk about it, you know, that was always very powerful. And that that idea of theater and community and people coming together, you know, with one goal of putting on the show. That actually is sort of how the movement works too. So it, The trajectory from my community theater upbringing into, like, wanting to be an actress and going to NYU and building my theater company and then a political theater company and then ending up at The Gathering, it's it's a real straight line, the way artists collaborate, you know, you need a director and a producer and a writer is sort of the same way that the movement works, at least from my point of view. Maybe that's just because I think of myself as a producer. You bring the message and you bring the legal mind and you get the electeds on board and you have, you know, the impacted people centering them at the front. So it's all the same sort of models or structures. It's just a matter of figuring out what your common goals are and trying to get everybody to follow that same path.
0: Right. Right. Everybody has a role, so to speak. In... Everybody
1: has a role to play, yeah. Yes,
0: yes. What has been your biggest victory for social justice in the things that you've done in your experience? That, you know, Something that you have been a part of that
1: made you really um, proud. It's not something we talk about a lot, but we work really closely with a young athlete named Kenny Stills. He's the wide receiver for the Miami Dolphins. And he's been kneeling for the last two years um, every game and it still does, we put together with him um, something called Kenny's Justice Road Trip. And basically, in his off-season in February, with a couple of his friends, he got in his VW bus, and he did a road trip all through the South, meeting with different community organizations, civil rights organizations, racial justice organizations, youth prisons, civil rights museums. He worked with Woke Vote and did a training. He met with Angela Davis in Birmingham a couple of weeks ago. He visited the Legacy Museum with Bryan Stevenson. He worked with immigrant youth in North Carolina and incarcerated youth in Louisiana. And his personal transformation and how he now wants to take everything he's learned and build a network among all these organizations and do it every year and just keep building this network and our participation in that has been really exciting. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, not all of
0: us can go on a bus tour. No. <laughs> <laughs> or join a protest or necessarily attend one of your workshops. But as everyday citizens
1: in support of more justice, what can we do? All you need to do is know what matters to you and where your concerns are, and then find a way to let your voice be heard. So, if you have a, a local political problem, like needing a stoplight somewhere, those kinds of civic things are really important because, you know, there's safety issues in schools and kids. So maybe that stoplight is really, really important to your community. Teams and collaboration are your greatest resource. So I would say put together the people that you trust the most. A small team. It doesn't have to be huge the beauty of the internet is you can sort of figure out quickly who is responsible and who has the power to change the thing that you need changed. And once you figure that out, whether it's in your municipality or your town or your state, you identify the targets and then you reach out to them. I mean it's it's kind of that simple. And then you you figure out very quickly how strong the opposition is because sometimes the person that you're meeting with will agree with you. And, and then, you know, you're... It's, and it's done, It's basically. done. <laughs> yeah. it's done. But if we're off. talking about like huge issues like racial inequality or civil rights or voting restoration, you know, obviously it's a, they're bigger targets, but ultimately somebody is responsible for that. Good yeah. advice. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Um, Young people make me hopeful. What those young people were able to do following Parkland and to really be so bold and to have no fear going after elected officials and, and everything that they did, they did, you know, at 14 years old. And it, that to me was just absolutely incredible. They inspired their peers across the country. I mean, I know I'll be casting a vote for them soon. And uh, that's why I get excited. Fantastic. Thank you very much. You're so welcome.
0: I think it's apt that what makes Julianne hopeful is the young people of Parkland. After all, she works as an advocate for youth justice. Her work is so essential. And although she explained that there's a well-established history of incarcerating children in this country, I still do wonder, how do we get here? When will we rectify this system of injustice for our most vulnerable children? I just know that if we were to give every child a fair chance, regardless of race or economic background, we will definitely unlock the full human potential for our society. Like any good activist group, the gathering utilizes a variety of strategies to make change and I really appreciate learning more about how Kingian nonviolence works. Suspending your first judgment and meeting people where they are makes it possible to champion others to your cause. How can we turn everyday citizens into engaged constituents? On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Brad Fitch. He's the president and CEO of the Congressional Management Foundation and is the author of Citizen's Handbook to Influencing Elected Officials. He makes an eloquent case for direct interaction with our members of Congress.
2: What our research shows is that members of Congress, when they interact with constituents, primarily want to know one of two things. One, they'd like to hear a personal story on how a bill or issue may affect you. No lobbyist can do that. No lobbyist can attach an issue to a face, and that's what constituent advocacy can do. Second, they'd like to hear a little bit about the local impact. I remember when I was working as a legislative director for a lawmaker who was trying to decide whether or not to co-sponsor a piece of legislation that would overturn some regulation that EPA put out that had to do with dry cleaners, and basically the EPA had put out a regulation that required dry cleaners to use a more expensive chemical but it was better for the environment. And my boss was torn on this. And we had a dry cleaner write in and say, I have three dry cleaning established in your district. I employ 12 people. If this regulation is allowed to put forward, I'm going to have to lay one of those people off. That's a very powerful statement to an elected official because that shows them the direct impact that their decisions have on their local community.
0: Until next time,
2: I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for visiting to Future Hindsight. The executive producer
0: and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services.